Okay, ladies and gentlemen, um, we'll gather here at the river. A little travelogue. I don't know if you remember these. Did you, did you ever attend what they used to call travelogues? You never did, had those. We had those in Minnesota. Somebody would come from, from someplace like, you know, South America, and he would tell you about how it is that he hunted wild jaguars and things like that, and, uh, or people that had traveled overseas. It was kind of your, the early days of, of um, I guess, exposing us to what was happening somewhere else in the world. And now with modern-day media, it's, um, it's a very different thing. But I'm going to take you on a little travelogue here today. I, um, I have to tell you in advance that a part of the history here, had, there's, there are reasons for why this history had some meaning to our family. And so I don't want to um, overburden you with my ancestor this and my ancestor that and all that kind of stuff, but you're going to have to bear with it just a little bit. Um, can we turn the lights on maybe just a little bit more? What I'm doing here is I'm, I'm actually taking pictures that were taken by a relative, um, and she is, was a good photographer. Uh, it's just that it's a little bit simpler than some of the stuff that I have. Um, let's begin with a word of prayer. As we look, O oh Lord, into time and history, we pray that we might become all the wiser for it. Help us to recognize and see that we are but ourselves, products of our own time and generation. We only pray that we might be able to rise above these things as well and see within our own midst both those things that are positive and those things that are negative, those things that contributed to the lives of the world in which we live and those things that also are burdens upon our hearts and our minds. We therefore ask you, O Lord, that you would preserve this church for another 500 years, and we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We arrived um, in Berlin, uh, and we took a little day tour of, um, of Berlin. I'm going to see if this works here. We took, we took a little day tour, uh, it is working, I think, um, of Berlin, and one of the things that we saw not too far from the Brandenburg Gate uh, was this Jewish memorial. Some of you who have been on heritage tours before recognize this. Uh, it's, a, it's a rather um, awesome, daunting um, memorial, but it is a reminder. It's actually built over the top of, I think, what was uh, Hitler's uh, bunker. And um, it's a reminder to all of us of what happens when uh, you find a society that is, uh, number one, where the rule of law and order is removed, and where, uh, as you recall, Hitler uh, burned the Reichstag and blamed it on the communists, which gave him the excuse to be able to receive kind of some ab basically absolute power. But it becomes a reminder to us, too, that any time that you choose a, a group of people to become the, um, uh, the whipping post, I guess you might say, uh, the use, what we call demagoguery. Demagoguery is where we use fear of something in order to motivate people. And they, of course, use the fear of the Jews, and they use them as the reason for why it is that Germany was having so many problems. It's one of those things that, let's see if this works. Oops. I don't know. I'll probably have, oh, here we go. 
No, this is Memorial. Um, we um, were driving around Berlin. Uh, right after we saw this statue here, um, we came out and we saw a man get robbed of a thousand um, euros by, um, it was a Sunday morning and there was no traffic, but apparently the thieves didn't dis decide to stay away. But this is a statue of a guy by the name of Von Blucher. And Blucher uh, was the individual who uh, really pretty much led the Prussian army uh, against uh, Napoleon. Uh, and he fought, uh, he was the deciding factor, I guess you might say, in the defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo. The, um, there are a handful of, of uh, German generals that stand out as perhaps some of these greatest generals of all time. Von Blucher was one of them, and um, he uh, is what they say, Anengemeinsaft. He was a, a, a cousin of our family. Um, the, whale, the, the Wailing Wall. The, this is a, uh, the old Berlin Wall. They preserved a, a piece of it. And, um, of course, this too became uh, is a statement or of uh, really what you might call the repression of people that comes through anti-God ideology. And the communists, of course, were very good atheists, if you will. Um, a guy by the name of Hardenberg. Later on, we'll talk a little bit about him. We went out to this interesting place called the Citadel. It's not too far from a place called Spandau, which is very close to the airport. Um, it, by itself, it wasn't all that glorious. I mean, it was, it's, it's a, a citadel that was used for defensive purposes. But inside the citadel, there are a number of statues that had been erected by the Kaiser. Um, these uh, statues were used to be by the Brandenburg Gate in something called the Sigis Ali. There was an alley that ran all the way from the Brandenburg Gate all the way to the German Reichstag. And all of these figures, uh, of course, because they represented German history, um, when the communists took over in Berlin, uh, somebody knew what the communists were going to do with all these. And so some person, I don't even know who it is, um, actually buried them and in order to preserve them. And they have been recently... Uh, picked up, renovated, and restored. I think I'll... Uh, there. Okay. I'll show you some of these. Uh, these there was a whole uh, alleyway of them. Um, you can see the, the knights. Some of them, this guy here was... Um, you, you see how he holds a little church in his arms? What this means is usually that, um, that he established... A, either a convent or a monastery. His name was uh, Gunz Edler von Putlitz, and um, he was one of our ancestors. Um, all, almost all the, uh, the Prussian kings were here. Uh, you see, uh, this was a rather significant piece of monument. That's Lenin's head that apparently came down from some statue. But, um, yeah, so that was... That was the, um, the, the citadel. And um, the reason why we went to Spandau, are we going backwards or what's going on here? The reason why we went to Spandau is actually because of, of this guy right here. Um, 
in the time of Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther had the support of his Saxon duke, uh, duke and elector. The, the word elector is used in Germany because there were seven electors that stood as kind of, you might call it, the, the highest uh, council of authority. The emperor was usually chosen from the electors. Um, that would be the king of Saxony. It was the king of, of, um, of uh, Bohemia. It was the um, king of France. There were a number of, and, and of course the elector of Saxony, who was Luther's, was also an elector. Um, there was one other, and he was the elector of Brandenburg. Now, if you know anything about Brandenburg, Brandenburg is basically that area around Berlin. This was an area that had been controlled uh, ever since approximately the 8th century by Slavic people. They were uh, called Vens, or the Vendish people. Um, they had a king, and um, this king was, uh, of course, they, they were strong enough to withhold or to fight against the Germans as the Germans were advancing, this, the, the Saxon uh, people were advancing out in that direction. But they had a hard time dislodging them. Um, Otto I, who was uh, the German emperor, at first uh, conquered all the way and established his capital there in Brandenburg, which is, I mean, Berlin at that time didn't really exist. It was just a nothing of a little village. Brandenburg had been the capital, but then the Slavs came back. They murdered everybody and killed everybody that was in Brandenburg. Then a guy by the name of Albrecht the Bear came back in the 12th century, and he reconquered all of Brandenburg, and to really make everything work well, he married the daughter of the Slavic king. And so that solidified or gave to these Saxons the, the right to be able to possess this land. Well, the, therefore, the, the Saxon, or these um, Brandenburg um, dukes that became electors, in Luther's day, uh, he, he didn't like Luther at all. There were a couple of reasons. <clears throat> One was that you received uh, benefits or, or you became, I guess you sometimes received money or wealth or protection from the emperor if you stayed on the side of the emperor. And, of course, the emperor at that time was Charles V, <coughs> and his religion was Roman Catholic. Luther was protesting, but what seemed to kind of set things off is that this elector also had uh, a little affair on the side. And his wife was the daughter of the king of Denmark. And she loved Martin Luther because Martin Luther was just letting that old elector have it with his words and his writings and whatever else not. And these, uh, but these uh, Brandenburg electors were also beginning to be a, a source of great power because Albrecht of Brandenburg, who was the son of the elector, he was the one who went and not only became the bishop of uh, Magdeburg, but he also wanted to become and have the bishopric of Mainz. And if you recall, uh, the Archbishop of Mainz and the Archbishop of, of, Brandon, of Magdeburg, they were also electors. So if you took Brandenburg, Magdeburg, and Mainz, 
you had three of the seven electors in the entire European theater. And so the Saxon elector was getting quite concerned. So Luther's elector was very concerned. So he really saw Luther kind of like a, uh, a dog. There was a dog. Ah, and Luther was over there biting at the rear end of this elector, right? But um, this elector's wife, she really liked Luther because Luther took her side, and he was the one who defended her, spoke well for her, and she loved his doctrine. So she had a son. Now, the elector's name was Joachim I, and she had a son named Joachim II, which, of course, makes sense, doesn't it? Joachim II is the one who, when he became elector, he decided that Brandenburg was going to become Lutheran. How is it that you, here you are, you're a Roman Catholic, you've been doing all the, do you stand up and say, I now am a Lutheran because really at this time there was no such thing as Lutheran, right? I mean, there, it wasn't like there was a Lutheran church. They were Lutherans, but they were, they were these protesting Catholics is what they really were. There had to be some sign that you had become a Lutheran. And what would it be? Did Lutherans do liturgy? Yeah, they did liturgy. They even elevated the host. They did all kinds of things that these Roman Catholics had done. They were things that Luther took out of the Mass later on as a part of his reform. But the one thing in particular that actually became a statement that you were a Lutheran is when the pastor celebrated the Lord's Supper in both times. That is to say, when the people received both the bread and the wine. Joachim II, in this church, celebrated the Lord's Supper in both kinds for the first time, and his bishop was a guy by the name of Matthias von Jago, J-A-G-O-W, and Matthias von Jago was the nephew of my forefather. So, a lot you'll see, uh, you know, I, I just get there and I get the EPGBs. You guys got to understand this, you know. This is what happens, you know. Um, then we went, um, after this, we went to a place called Brandenburg. This was the, the actual city of Brandenburg. And um, it was here in Brandenburg. Now, and what happened, you know, we have to step back a little bit in time now. So Brandenburg becomes Lutheran, but then there is this thing that breaks out that becomes a problem for all of Europe. In the year 1618, there was an altercation down in Prague, actually, where some Reformed, not Lutheran, but Reformed guys, got a little ticked off at the Roman Catholics, and their uh, legate, or the imperial legate, the ambassador, they took and they threw him out the window of the castle. Well, apparently the, the emperor didn't like that. And that started what we now call the Thirty Years' War. Um, in that Thirty Years' War, it lasted for 30 years, 1618 to 1648, um, uh, uh, yeah. Um, 
almost all of northern Germany was just annihilated. The problems were not just that there were armies that were fighting, but armies that had to be fed, not from the expense of their home countries, but they would be going through the land, taking everybody's cattle, taking everybody's food, anything that was grown, the armies would requisition it. They, if they had any money, the armies wanted it. They were told, Roland Ziegler tells me that in order to be able to, you know, people would, of course, hide their money, right? That the Swedes, Swedish army, even the Gustavus Adolphus Swedish army that came down and supposedly fought on behalf of the, of the Lutheran Reformation, the Swedish army would come through an area, and if people didn't give them their funds or didn't tell them where their money was, they would actually heat up human excrement and they would open their mouths and pour hot human excrement in their mouths until they told them where their money was. This is the kind of thing that was going on. People were dying from every possible disease because they, they lacked nutrition as well. They didn't have good water. They didn't have good food. It was a brutal thing. And this happened especially here in Brandenburg. It pretty much devastated things. But in the cathedral in Brandenburg, this, by the way, there is an artist who actually, it's a fairly well-known thing. He, he's got little dogs all over Brandenburg. These are little, um, um, yeah, this is a, a reconstruction of Brandenburg. This was the cathedral. The cathedral in Brandenburg, in, um, I, my, one of my um, forefathers was a pastor of this cathedral during the Thirty Years' War. So we were there. You can see it there. This is, um, this is back in Spandau, I think. In the Thirty Years' War? Or did it re or right. There are some places, you know, if they had military significance, everything was leveled. Um, if it was near a railroad, everything was, was leveled. Um, some of the stuff survived the war, but oftentimes it might be a roof that they might have to repair. But in some places, it was total destruction. Then we went to a place um, back in, um, if we step back in time, there's this place called Saxon-Anhalt. I don't know whether or not this means anything to you, but when, do you know where, where it is that the Saxons originally came from? You've heard of the Anglo-Saxons, you know, like these people of English descent here, all two of them. Um, <laughs> German, oh good, stand firm. Um, where, do the, where do those Saxons come from? Where, what's the home of, of the Saxons? You know, anybody? Yeah, it's up in that area of Schleswig-Holstein, way up in basically what we might call Denmark, that little neck that go, where it goes from Germany up into Den Denmark. Originally, the Saxons and the Angles were two uh, tribes. The Angles were originally called, the, where we get our word angels, because they were all blonde. They were these blonde things that looked like angels, so they called them the Angles. Um, the Saxons conquered, and they started to press downward all the way down through Westphalia, and then they came down into this area called Saxon-Anhalt, which was the old Saxony. And Saxony then as they began to conquer eastward, there was, uh, they were, um, they were, it was in three different sections that they conquered all the way out to eventually to the area over on Poland. This, uh, this church was built uh, probably somewhere around 
900, somewhere maybe around 1,000. Some of the earliest times that these people uh, were here, Alvinsleben was the name, that was the same name as that, as that um, the same family as that bishop came from that did the sacramental thing with the elector. But Alvo and Bendo, the very first uh, fathers of their family, had been soldiers fighting against Charlemagne. Charlemagne took 60,000 soldiers and went over and conquered the Saxons. Saxons had been a big problem. They were pagans. They were always raiding on the, on the frontiers. So Charlemagne, back in the 8th century, came and conquered the Saxons, just slaughtered them because, of course, they were much more powerful. Well, back in, the, in those days when you were fighting against um, uh, an army, if you lost, there were the people who were laying on the field that were injured. And what they would do is they would go through, and they didn't take care of them. They went through and they killed them all. They just killed them. That way you didn't have to take responsibility. And you can take their armor. You could take their weapons and, and you can take their money or whatever it is that they may have had. Well, in Charlemagne's army, however, they were Christians and they came with monks. And these monks went out in the field and instead of killing their opponents, their Saxon opponents who were pagans, they actually took them and brought them and nursed them back to health. And Alvo and Bendo were two individuals who converted to Christianity because they had been so kindly treated by these Christian monks. So Alvo's family probably received this land and, um, and they are the, the, many of the members of the family are actually buried in this church. You can see these, these epitaphs that they have within the congregation, in the churches. They, um, we did a little devotion there in that church, and that was the pastor. And you see this, this was rather interesting because have you ever heard of somebody called Albrecht Durer? Albrecht Durer um, was a great uh, Lutheran reformer, uh, artist, and um, this was his design. This is uh, the gravestone of, uh, of Gebhard the 17th. Yeah, you remember that now. Just keep it in your mind. Um, this was the old castle of the family, and this is our group that was uh, gathered there together. Uh, all relatives, all cousins of each other. We, most of us had, ne had never met each other. Then we went to the Alvinsleben's uh, latest Schloss, uh, castle uh, Schloss that was... Um, Located here, called it's in a place called Hundesburg, and um, a guy by the name of Ludolf the Tenth von Alvensleben, uh, who is our forefather. Um, this was they're just beginning the restoration of this uh, Schloss. Um, it was uh, heavily damaged over the years, and you know, off, oftentimes, especially in East Germany. What they would do is they would take these big mansion houses and they would use them for things like warehousing. You know, they would take grain and they would put it in there. They were neglected. Of course, they didn't have a single penny with which to, to, um, to uh, renovate these things. 
they're actually, they told me that, that they are bringing artists actually from uh, Charlotte, Charlottesville. They're bringing artists from the United States to actually do a lot of this, this work because of the specialty. This is, these are the gardens that were out in front that they are trying to restore. This is what it looked like back in 1980 and even worse. There was a library there. Um, Joachim I von Alvensleben, you know, just again, remember those names. I'm sure that your salvation will depend on it. Um, Joachim I von Alvensleben, who was the brother of Ludolf X von Alvensleben, who was my forefather, the, those two, uh, Joachim was actually a, uh, uh, quite a scholar uh, at the age of 14, attended university at the University of Leipzig, and studied actually under Martin Luther at Wittenberg. Um, he had a library of over 16,000 volumes, and half of that library is, it was contained actually within this schloss as well. This is his Bible. And here you see the ramparts of the... Um, Castle, there it is a little bit. They, um, by the way, if anybody, they have a, every year they have a, um, uh, I guess you might say a group of, of musicians, uh, young mu musicians, they pay all expenses and they come from all over the world and they uh, produce music. They, they have a, this going on here. So, um, yeah, this is just old time world. This is the barn. Lots of renovations. Then we went to a place called the Wasserschloss. The Wasserschloss. Um, it was a water castle, and we overnighted there. This was a little chapel on the inside. Um, with the, most often nowadays in Germany, these quaint little places, they mainly just use them for people who get married. There, there isn't much by way of worship that takes place. This picture here with a couple of family names, and there we actually we were able to use the organ that was here too, and we did a service. Then we went to uh, something a little bit closer to the Feeney Heart. This um, there was actually a town called Feenenburg, uh, and this was the Burg B O U R G de Fiene F I E N E. And um, this Bourg de Fina, which means that it was originally probably French, um, we think that the, it was right around the turn of the 14th century that um, there were knights that were brought in to defend the land of the Bishop of Hildesheim, and they established a fortress called Bourg de Fina. Uh, we think maybe that was the origin of the Fini name because the Germans claim that Fini is not a German name, that it's originally was F-I-E-N-N-E-S, and uh, there were Fenies in England as well. This was a part of the old fortress that was the Burg de Fini. There are some, this is my sister Sarah, my sister Susan, and uh, you know who that is, I think. Uh, and this is, my, this is Sarah's daughter. Um, before we took off on this trip, uh, we discovered... Uh, from records from uh, Sarah's husband that um, her husband is actually a descendant of Martin Luther. And so my little niece was walking around saying, I'm 14th generation descendant of Martin Luther. <laughs> you know, everywhere that we went, we'd, we'd introduce her. 
Um, yeah, there's the entrance. Um, then we went to a city called Goslar. Goslar was an old, uh, probably one of the wealthiest cities in all of uh, Germany at one time. It was an imp- what they call an imperial city. Uh, imperial cities were, um, if you know a little bit about how power used to work in, in Europe, most of your, of your aristocracy, your nobility, were landed. They were people who owned the land. Then, you know, somebody would build a, a castle, a burg, and then that burg would become a place of refuge uh, and protection. And if you wanted to be a merchant, if you wanted to sell something, if you wanted to be able to make something, if you had a trade, you would go and you would live near that burg. And so that's where the name burgers came from, not hamburgers, burgers. A burger was a person who lived near a burg, and that was the beginning of villages or beginning of cities. Well, the cities, as they grew in prominence, they wanted to be able to be free from the influence of the nobles. The nobles would usually dominate them. The nobles would usually extract taxes from them. They would send their merchants from one city to another, and the nobles would be at the road, and they would be demanding that they pay them. And so they would appeal to the emperor, and the emperor would then turn around and say that he would give them certain privileges, like they could have fairs or festivals, and that their people would not have to pay taxes to them, but they would then offer to the emperor money and land and even soldiers if the emperor ever called on them. So the emperor was oftentimes kind of set at odds with the local nobility, but these cities started to become more and more wealthy and more and more prosperous. And um, Goslar was particularly prosperous because it had a, a mine where they mined iron ore. The Hartz Mountains, which lie in this section of Germany, uh, were incredibly rich in all kinds of minerals. Um, Silver was one of those things, and the Saxon electors became extremely wealthy because of the silver that came out of these mines. Um, There was actually, one of our our families actually had lead uh, that they uh, mined and sold. And of course, this Ramislow mine that is located in Goslar, we've actually have found that there was the same mineral that was actually in England these people were mining already in the 7th century. They were mining, and then they were building weapons that enabled them to be able to conquer England. So Goslar was a very important city. But in Goslar, there's a, what they call a palace, or a false palace, palace of a guy by the name of Heinrich the Lion, a very major person in German history. And there are some paintings there that kind of tell the history of Germany. This is you-know-who. That's Martin Luther as he stands before Charles V at the Diet of, yeah, we love to say worms, but Germans would say worms, worms, right? Oops, there we are again. This is uh, the story, uh, the painted story of Charlemagne's conquest of the Saxons. Look at the, uh, the helmets that the Saxons have, kind of this pagan religion, you know, the, 
the religion of the Saxons, the original pagan religion of the Saxons, was very closely related to the same religion and the same ethnic group that occupied Scandinavia. They're all kind of cousins of one another. Um, they were well known for the fact that they practiced human sacrifice. Can you imagine? Now, when they say that when the Norwegians became Christians, they, they used to sacrifice a human being, usually a slave, whenever they had what they called their alting, which is their congress, when they met once a year. When they became Christians, they set a slave free when they had their congress. Kind of tells you how it is that this was changing the mentality of the people. But Charlemagne, was the con he was the one who conquered the Saxons and subjected them. They had a... Uh, they had a Saxon duke by the name of Vidukind. Vidukind, um, you know, they, they just couldn't conquer him. He, every time if they beat an army, he'd disappeared. He'd go to Denmark and they'd protect him and such. He'd come back and he'd gather another force. They'd try to be able to reassert themselves. Finally, Vidukind was so defeated by Charlemagne, they say that one day that he s crept into the camp of Charlemagne and there was a tent there where they were celebrating the Eucharist, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And as he slipped into the tent and he was watching the priest as the priest was consecrating, he saw the priest become Jesus. Well, uh, they say that they don't really know if it's true, but it was at least an excuse for him to become a Christian. So Vidukin then himself, the king of the Saxons, became a Christian as well. The, most of you are probably descended from Saxons, right? Probably. Um, the Saxons, um, like Anne here, um, it, it, they're really they're impossible to convert to Christianity, but once they become Christians, they're also impossible to unconvert. I'm picking on you, Anne. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> you're, you're used to it. Okay, um, yeah, this is, this is the false palace, and um, the person that you see over here on the right, this is Barbarossa. Have you ever heard of Barbarossa? He was the emperor of, of Europe. He, um, he died in the 13th century. He was uh, actually on a, um, on a crusade to the Holy Land, and... He was actually a very, he was a very good emperor, but on his way to the Holy Land, he got to a bridge, and there were so many people that were trying to cross over the bridge, he couldn't get, a, he couldn't get to the other side fast enough, so he decided to take his horse down through the river. And as he went down through the river, he had his armor on, and he fell off of his horse, and he drowned. Um, so, um, but over here, Barbarossa's nemesis was this guy named Heinrich the Lion. And Heinrich the Lion was a very, well, in history, you could connect him to a number of different things. For one thing, he had gotten divorced, but he went to England when Barbarossa exiled him. And he went to England, and he married the daughter of, who's the famous uh, British-English uh, king that went on crusades? Richard. Yeah, Richard the Lionhearted. Right, and uh, but he, uh, there, there was there was a conflict. Apparently, Barbarossa wanted to be able to have Heinrich the Lion come with him down to um, uh, to do military exercises in um, 
in Italy, and he refused, and Barbarossa ended up actually disinheriting him from all of his property. Um, he went away, came back, they eventually restored a good portion of his lands, but almost all of the Saxon dukes that are up there in northern Germany, those, that area, you know, you kind of, they're small to us, but in those days it was a big deal. The Saxon dukes are almost all descended from Heinrich the Lion. Um, he is a, there were two parties in Europe called the Welfen and, and the Ghibellines. And the, this is like the Democrats and the Republicans. Who do you think are the good guys? <laughs> the um, the Welfen uh, were those who uh, were more connected to the nobility and the Welfen, these the Heinrich the Lion's ancestors. The Ghibellines were those who were more closely connected to the cities and the imperial uh, forces. So uh, on the right, uh, you had uh, Barbarossa. On the left, you had Heinrich the Lion. The city of Goslar is very well known. It was a very wealthy city, very beautiful structures. One of our ancestors was the, um, had been the, the um, what we call the Hauptmann. He was the, the military defender of the city of, of Goslar. Beautiful fields, lots of poppies. Wide open, East Germany, as many of you know that if you've been there, uh, because East Germany had cooperative farms under communism, the, the expanses, it's, it's more beautiful than even West Germany because of these magnificent expanses of farmland. It's not, it's not, you don't have as many villages. This is the, um, the Wasserschloss that we stayed in. Um, I think they reserved this little tower thing for newlyweds um, while we were there. Um, this is the city of, um, of um, uh, Wolfenbüttel. Um, it's a lot of history here. I don't know if I can... If, how, how long do we want to go? Uh, four more minutes? Four more minutes? <laughs> I have one hand. Um, in, this, uh, in this city of, of Wolfenbüttel, um, there is a church there where all of the dukes of Wolfenbüttel are buried. Um, it was actually a, a, a duke that was in, he was he refused uh, Lutheranism and actually became an adversary, attacked, in fact, attacked the free city of Goslar, that started uh, what we might call the Small Caldic War. If you recall, um, after Luther died, they knew that the emperor was probably going to come after him. So they, the Saxon duke actually went and had to conquer this area, this region called Wolfenbüttel. And when that happened, that's when it is that the emperor gathered together all of his armies. And they came up and they kind of caught the Saxon armies by surprise. And uh, as a result of it, the small Caldic War came to a very abrupt conclusion. And, okay, was a good thing that I didn't put anything schmaltzy there about my wife. Um, 
So anyway, uh, Wolfenbüttel, though, eventually became a, a very a stronghold of Lutheranism. And um, many of you, this, this uh, all right, real fast, I don't know. I don't know if I can tell you a fast story. What? Okay, I'll be really fast. The reason why it is that I took this picture of these guys is that these were the sons of the Duke that all died in a battle called Sieverhausen. But they had a sister. And the sister married a guy who was uh, a, du a duke of an area called Silesia, which is now in Poland, and uh, actually in a city that's called Frankenstein. It's actually where it is that the story of Frankenstein was written about by Shelley. But anyway, when he died for only five years after they were married, and she had, uh, she was supposed to inherit this land and whatever else not, and his family moved in, took all of it, and disinherited her. She didn't have anything at all. So she goes to an old family castle that was over in the other side of the hearts. And in this little castle, she devotes herself her entire life to the care of the poor. To, she becomes basically like a Lutheran nun, devoting herself. And she does all this next to a town called Alshusen. And it so happened that the pastor there in Alshusen was one of my forefathers. And then when she died, he actually came back and preached her funeral at this church in Wolfenbüttel. So that's the reason for why it is that um, that became important. Anyway, all right, I, I wore you all out here. I don't know if everybody's falling asleep here. Okay. So every, everywhere that we went, there was a slice of German history and some piece of it that actually had something to do with our family. For those of you that might not remember, we have um, actually uh, Pastor David Wan with us today. He was a summer vicar of ours back here a few, how many years ago? Seven, Seven years ago. It's a biblical number. <laughs> he was a summer vicar uh, with us, and he's with us today, so we want to welcome you as well, David. Okay. Okay. Uh, Dennis Bangmeyer left. Should we all say a prayer? Okay. Dear Lord and Savior, we pray that as we look back in time and history, that we might also realize that we ourselves are standing at monumental and important crossroads. We pray that we might be faithful to this confession that has been given unto us, the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation, freely given to us in Christ our Lord. And that this gospel, so avidly preached by Martin Luther, which set free the hearts of all who were burdened and could not find any assurance, knowing whether or not they lived or died, that they would be with Christ in heaven. We now know that we can and are because of your grace and your mercy. Help us to remain faithful to that for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.